Chapter Twenty Three of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I'll be a hypocrite if you choose. There could hardly be a more unhappy man than was the squire on his journey home. He had buoyed himself up with hope till he had felt certain that he would return to Newton Priory its real and permanent owner, no longer a lodger in the place, as he had called himself to the lawyer, but able to look upon every tree as his own, with power to cut down every oak upon the property, though, as he knew very well, he would rather spill blood from his veins than cut down one of them. But in that case he would preserve the oaks, preserve them by his own decision, because they were his own, and because he could give them to his own son. His son should cut them down if he pleased, and then the power of putting up would be quite as sweet to him as the power of pulling down. What pleasure would he have in making every deficient house upon the estate efficient, when he knew that the stones as he laid them would not become the property of his enemy? He was a man who had never spent his full income. The property had been in his hands now for some fifteen years, and he had already amassed a considerable sum of money, a sum which would have enabled him to buy out his nephew altogether, without selling an acre, presuming the price already fixed to have been sufficient. He had determined to sell something, knowing that he could not do as he would do, with the remainder, if his hands were empty. He had settled it all in his mind, how Ralph, his Ralph, must marry and have a separate income. There would be no doubt about his Ralph's marriage when once it should be known that his Ralph was the heir to Newton. The bar sinister would matter but little then, would be clean forgotten. His mind had been full of all this as he had come up to London. It had all been settled. He had decided upon ignoring altogether those cautions which his son and nephew and lawyer had croaked into his ears. This legitimate heir was a ruined spendthrift, who had no alternative but to raise money, no ambition but to spend money, no pursuit but to waste money. His temperament was so sanguine that when he entered Mr. Carey's office he had hardly doubted. Now everything had been upset, and he was cast down from triumph into an abyss of despondency by two lines from this wretched, meaningless, poor-spirited spendthrift. I believe he'd take a pleasure in seeing the property going to the dogs merely to spite me, said the squire to his son as soon as he reached home having probably forgotten his former idea that his nephew was determined with the pertinacity of a patient far-sighted jew money-lender to wring from him the last possible shilling ralph who was not the heir was of his nature so just that he could not hear an accusation which he did not believe to be true without protesting against it the squire had called the heir a spiritless spendthrift and a malicious evildoer, intent upon ruining the estate, and a grasping Jew, all in the same breath. 
"'I think you are hard upon him, sir,' said the son to the father. "'Of course you think so. At any rate you'll say so,' said the squire. "'One would suppose I was thinking only of myself to hear you talk.' "'I know what you are thinking of,' said Ralph slowly, "'and I know how much I owe you.' "'I sometimes think that you ought to curse me,' said the squire. After this, at this moment, with such words ringing in his ears, Ralph found it to be impossible to expostulate with his father. He could only take his father's arm and whisper a soft feminine word or two. He would be as happy as the day was long if only he could see his father happy. "'I can never be happy till I have placed you where you would have been,' said the squire. The gods are just, and our pleasant vices make instruments to scourge us. He did not quote the line to himself, but the purport of it hung heavy on him. And yet he thought it hard that because he had money in his pocket, he could not altogether make himself free of the scourge. On the following morning he was less vituperative and less unreasonable, but he was still intent upon the subject. After breakfast he got his son into his own room, the room in which he did his magistrate's work, and added up his accounts and kept his spuds and spurs, and seriously discussed the whole matter. What would it be wise that they should do next? You don't mean to tell me that you don't wish me to buy it, said the squire. No, Ralph would not say that. If it were in the market to be bought, and if the money were forthcoming, of course such a purchase would be expedient. The money is forthcoming, said the squire. We can make it up one way or another. What matter if we did sell brown rigs? What matter if we sold brown rigs and twining as well? Ralph quite acceded to this. As far as buying and selling were concerned, he would have acceded to anything that would have made his father happy. I won't say a word against this fellow, since you are so fond of him, continued the squire. Ralph, though his father paused, made no reply to the intended sarcasm. But you must allow that he had a reason for writing such a letter as he did. Of course he had a reason, said Ralph. Well, we'll say that he wants to keep it. That's not unnatural. Not at all. Everybody likes to keep what he's got, and to get as much as he can. That's nature. But a man can't eat his cake and have it. He's been slow to learn that, no doubt. But I suppose he has learned it. He wouldn't have gone to Sir Thomas Underwood in the way he did, crying to be helped, if he hadn't learned it. Remember, Ralph, I didn't go to him first. He came to me. You always forget that. What was the meaning, then, of Sir Thomas writing to me in that pitiful way, asking me to do something for him, and he who had, I don't know how much, something like eight hundred pounds a year, I take it, the day he came of age? Of course he has been imprudent. He cannot eat his cake and have it. He wants to eat it, and I want to have it. I am sure it may be managed. I suppose you mean to go up and see him? See Ralph? Why not? 
You are not afraid of him. The son smiled, but made no answer. You might find out from him what it is really he wants, and what he will really do. Those attorneys don't understand. Carey isn't a bad fellow, and as for honesty, I'd trust him with anything. I've known him and his father all my life, and in any ordinary piece of business there is no one whose opinion I would take so soon. But he talks of my waiting, telling me that the thing will come round after a few years, as if what one wanted was merely an investment for one's money. It isn't that. No, sir, it isn't that. Not that at all. It's the feeling of the thing. Your lawyer may be the best man in the world to lay out your money in a speculation, but he doesn't dare to buy contentment for you. He doesn't see it, and one hardly dares to try and make him see it. I give half of it all to have the other half, but I cannot tell him that. I'd give one half so long as that fellow wasn't to be the owner of the place. We'll have no opposition, Newton, in the place. The squire's son was, of course, willing enough to go up to London. He would see the heir at any rate, and endeavor to learn what were the wishes of the heir. You may say what money you like, said the squire. I hardly care what I pay, so long as it is possible to pay it. Go up to ten thousand pounds more, if that will do it. I don't think I can bargain, said the son. But he can, said the father. At any rate, you can find out whether he will name a price. I'd go myself, but I know I should quarrel with him. Ralph prepared himself for the journey, and as a matter of course took the parson into his confidence, not telling the parson anything of the absolute sum named, but explaining that it was his purpose to become acquainted with the heir, and if possible, to learn his views. "'You'll find Ralph a very different fellow from what my uncle thinks him,' said the parson. "'I shall be much mistaken if he does not tell you quite openly what he intends. He is careless about money, but he never was greedy.' And then they got to other matters. "'You will, of course, see the girls at Fulham.' said the parson. Yes, I shall manage to get down there. The story of Gregory's passion for Clarissa was well known to the other. Gregory, who would not for worlds have spoken of such a matter among his general acquaintance, who could not have brought himself to mention it in the presence of two hearers, had told it all to the one companion who was nearest and dearest to him. I wish I were going with you, said the parson. Why not come with me, then? And yet I don't wish it. If I were in London, I doubt whether I would go there. There could be no use in it. It is one of those things, said Ralph, in which a man should never despair, as long as there is a possibility. Ah, yes, people say so. I don't believe in that kind of perseverance myself. At any rate, not with her. She knows her own mind as well as I know mine. I think I promised her that I would trouble her no more. Promises like that are mere pie-crusts, said Ralph. Give her my love, that's all. And don't do that unless you are alone with her. I shall live it down some day, no doubt. But to tell the truth, I have made up my mind not to marry. 
I'm half inclined to think that a clergyman shouldn't marry. There are some things which our ancestors understood pretty well, although we think they were such fools. I should like to see the new cousin, certainly. Ralph said nothing more about the new cousin, and was perhaps hardly aware how greatly the idea of again seeing the new cousin had enhanced the pleasure of his journey to London. About a week after this he started, having devoted nearly all the afternoon before he went to the packing of a large basket of ferns, to each root or small bundle of which was appended a long name in Latin, as in offering to Patience Underwood. And yet he did not care very much for Patience Underwood. It was just the end of September, the last day of September, when he reached London. Ralph the heir was out of town, and the servant at his lodging professed she did not know where he was. She thought it probable that he was at Mr. Orsball's, Mr. Orsball's of the Moonbeam, Barnfield, a-lookin' after his horses. She suggested this, not from any knowledge in her possession, but because Ralph was always believed to go to the Moonbeam when he left town. He would, however, be back next week. His namesake, therefore, did not consider that it would be expedient for him to follow the heir down to the Moonbeam. But the Underwood girls would certainly be at Fulham, and he started at once with his ferns for Popham Villa. He found them at home, and, singular to say, he found Sir Thomas there also. On the very next morning Sir Thomas was to start for Percycross, to commence the actual work of his canvas. The canvas was to occupy a fortnight, and on Monday the 16th the candidates were to be nominated. Tuesday the 17th was the day of the election. The whole household was so full of the subject that at first there was hardly room for the ferns. "'Oh, Mr. Newton, we are so much obliged to you. Papa is going to stand for Percycross.' That, or nearly that, was the form in which the ferns were received. Newton was quite contented. An excuse for entering the house was what he had wanted, and his excuse was deemed ample. Sir Thomas, who was disposed to be very civil to the stranger, had not much to say about his own prospects. To a certain degree he was ashamed of Percycross, and had said very little about it, even to Stem, since his personal acquaintance had been made with Messrs. Spiveycombe, Pyle, and Pabsby. But the girls were not ashamed of Percycross. To them, as yet, Percycross was the noblest of all British boroughs. Had not the conservatives of Percycross chosen their father to be their representative out of all British subjects? Sir Thomas had tried, but had tried quite in vain, to make them understand the real fashion of the selection. If Percycross would only send him to Parliament, Percycross should be divine. "'What do you think?' said Clary. "'There's a man of the name of—' "'I wish you'd guess the name of this man, who is going to stand against Papa, Mr. Newton.' "'The name won't make much difference,' said Sir Thomas. "'Ontario Moggs,' said Clary. "'Do you think it possible, Mr. Newton, that Percy Cross, the town where one of the Percys set up a cross in the time of the Crusaders, didn't he, Papa?' I shall not consider myself bound to learn all that unless they elect me, said Sir Thomas. 
but I don't think that there were Percy's in the days of the Crusaders. At any rate, the proper name is Percy St. Cross, said Clary. Could such a borough choose Ontario Moggs to be one of its members, Mr. Newton? I do like the name, said Mary Bonner. Perhaps Papa and Ontario Moggs may be the two members, said Clary, laughing. Only, if so, you must bring him down here, Papa. Only he's a shoemaker. That makes no difference in these days, said Sir Thomas. The ferns were at last unpacked, and the three girls were profuse in their thanks. Who does not know how large a space a basket of ferns will cover when it is unpacked? and how large the treasure looms. They'll cover the rocks on the other side, said Mary. It seemed to Newton that Mary Bonner was more at home than she had been when he had seen her before, spoke more freely of what concerned the house, and was beginning to become one of the family. But still she was, as it were, overshadowed by Clarissa. In appearance, indeed, she was the queen among the three but in active social life she did not compete with Clary. Patience stood as a statue on a pedestal, by no means unobserved and ignored, beautiful in form, but colorless. Newton, as he looked at the three, wondered that a man so quiet and gentle as the young parson should have chosen such a love as Clary Underwood. He remained half the day at the villa, dining there at the invitation of Sir Thomas, my last dinner said sir thomas unless i am lucky enough to be rejected men when they are canvassing never dine and not often after they're elected the guest had not much opportunity of ingratiating himself specially with the beauty but the beauty did so far ingratiate herself with him unconsciously on her part that he half resolved that should his father be successful in his present enterprise he would ask mary bonner to be the queen of newton priory his father had often urged him to marry never suggesting that any other quality beyond good looks would be required in his son's wife he had never spoken of money or birth or name i have an idea he had said laughing that you'll marry a fright some day. I own I should like to have a pretty woman about the house. One doesn't expect much from a woman, but she's bound to be pretty. This woman was at any rate pretty. Pretty, indeed. Was it possible that any woman should be framed more lovely than this one? But he must bide his time. He would not ask any girl to marry him till he should know what position he could ask her to fill. But though he spoke little to Mary, he treated her as men do treat women whom they desire to be allowed to love. There was a tone in his voice, a worship in his eye, and a flush upon his face, and a hesitation in his manner, which told the story, at any rate, to one of the party there. "'He didn't come to bring you the ferns,' said Clarissa to Patience. "'He brought them for all of us,' said Patience." young men don't go about with ferns for the sake of the ferns said clary they were merely an excuse to come and see mary why shouldn't he come and see mary he has my leave patty i think it would be excellent 
Isn't it odd that there should be two Ralph Newtons? One would be Mrs. Newton, and the other Mrs. Ralph. Clarissa, Clarissa, said Patience, almost in a tone of agony. I'll be a hypocrite if you choose, Patty, said Clarissa, or I'll be true, but you can't have me both at once. Patience said nothing further then. The lesson of self-restraint which she had desired to teach was very hard of teaching. There was just a word spoken between Sir Thomas and Newton about the property. "'I intend to see Ralph Newton if I can find him,' said Ralph, who was not the heir. "'I don't think he is far from town,' said Sir Thomas. "'My father thinks that we might come to an understanding.' "'Perhaps so,' said Sir Thomas.' I have no strong anxiety on the subject myself, said Newton, but my father thinks that if he does wish to sell his reversion, he doesn't wish it. How can a man wish it? Under the circumstances it may be desirable. You had better see him, and I think he will tell you, said Sir Thomas. You must understand that a man thinks much of such a position. Pray come to us again. We shall always be glad to see you when you are in town. End of chapter 23 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina